on this edition of the program, we take a look at the Senate map and get an update on all the money flowing into our political system with the money man, Dave Leventhal from Raw Story. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, V, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you. We are one-twelfth of the way through this year. Obviously, a big, big, big year. And we've spent almost exclusively our time on this show talking about the presidential primary talking about the presidential election. And we're going to do our best to move off it. So I got a little bit here, and then we're going to talk a little bit about presidential fundraising in our interview with Dave Leventhal. But Trump's pollster, pollster, Tony Fabrizio, he is working with one of the MAGA super PACs. He has released their polling in South Carolina It shows an essentially unchanged race. Their last poll on January 18th was Donald Trump up 68% to Nikki Haley's 28. On January 29th, it is 66% to 31%. And when you dig into the crosstabs as it is illuminated in the memo for Fabrizio, it's, it's dark, not only... Is there a majority of people who approved of Nikki Haley's job as governor voting against her or indicating their preference against her, but also the line of attack that she's using that Donald Trump is too old is falling on deaf ears? It is my belief that Nikki Haley is not going to make it to South Carolina. Like I always say, the one thing that we never really wrap our head around with this kind of stuff is exactly how brutal the pressure is when it comes to this stuff, when it comes to the time in between every day is a week, every week is a year. And Sure, you can strip down a campaign and go really, really, really bare bones. But for the stuff that Nikki Haley wants to do, we're talking about millions of dollars, thousands of man hours in dozens of states. That's stuff that needs to happen now. And if you don't have a path forward, that's hard to do. So, okay, that's it. That's all the presidential talk that we're going to do in this segment. We're going to give things a break. Don't worry. Instead, we're going to turn to the Senate. Right now, in the Senate, we have a majority for the Democrats, 51 to 49. That includes three independents, that caucus with the Democrats. And this year, we have the following seats up for grabs. 
On the Democratic side, this according to Cook Political Reports, these are the seats that are deemed safe, meaning we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. They're probably either going to reelect the incumbent or somebody from the same party is going to win that seat, meaning that the balance of power in the Senate is going to stay the same, at least according to these seats. California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Maryland, Maine, Minnesota, New Mexico, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia, Vermont, Washington. Not going to worry about those. Solid D, according to Cook Political Reports. Likely Democratic, so maybe we'll see. Keep a little bit, a little bit of an eye on this, but not too much of an eye, is what's happening in New Jersey. And that is with Senator Menendez under federal investigation. Again, caught with gold bars from a foreign country in his home, being attacked by his fellow Democratic Senator, uh, John Fetterman. So we don't really know there. What we're going to mostly focus on in this are seven seats that are specifically up for grabs. These are lean Democratic seats. Michigan, which is open because Debbie Stabenow is not running anymore. So for the first time in a very long time, you're not going to have an incumbent in Michigan. Nevada's seat currently held by Jackie Rosen. Pennsylvania's seat currently held by Bob Casey. And Wisconsin's seat held by Tammy Baldwin. We're going to get into why those states matter in a second. But let's go to the toss-ups. These are seats that Cook Political Report says it would not be shocking statistically either way if the Republicans or Democrats won it, and they are all Democratic seats. Kirsten Cinema's seat in Arizona, Montana's seat uh, uh, held by John Tester, and Ohio's seat held by Sherrod Brown. And let's also understand that the Democrats are starting from a position of minus one because the only person that was going to win as a Democrat in West Virginia is Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is not running. So Cook Political Reports has the open seat in West Virginia being a solid Republican seat. So even before we start, the Democrats, we're we're, we're tied, essentially. We are tied. We're at 50-50 before the game even begins. And that's because there's really no Republican seats that are up for grabs. We've got solid Republican seats in Indiana, in Missouri, in Mississippi, in North Dakota, in uh, both of them in, New- in, in Nebraska, Tennessee, Utah, and Wyoming. We've got lean Republicans, so maybe it'll be a little bit closer. But right now, Cook is not putting it uh, uh, into any kind of peril. Sorry, these are likely Republican seats. Rick Scott in Florida, Ted Cruz in Texas. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about the Ted Cruz seat. We're going to talk about it a little bit more with Dave Leventhal afterward. But right now, Cook Political Reports has this at likely Republican. So. Let's focus on those seven seats. And let's understand 
that because of Joe Manchin, we're at a 50-50 split right now. So it'll depend on who is in the White House, who controls the Senate, even if the Democrats defend each and every one of these seats, which it would be unlikely if Joe Biden, if uh, Joe Biden would have to win for all seven of these seats to be defended. That's just the reality of it. Because if Donald Trump wins, then that means that he probably won all the states that we are talking about. Because here are the states that decided the election both in 2016 and in 2020. Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. What does that have in common with this list? These are the same states. You're going to see a lot of resources poured in to those battleground states. Now, what I didn't list there is Montana. So let's start there. Montana in 2016 went to Donald Trump by 22 and a half points. In 2020, it went to Donald Trump by 16.9 points. My suspicion is that the only reason why Cook Political Reports has listed Montana as a toss-up and not a likely Republican race is because they are waiting to see who wins the Republican primary in that state. Right now, right, right now you have a hand-picked by the, the right people candidate in Tim Sheehy, former Navy veteran, he's a pilot, he's a small business creator, essentially make him in a lab and he's your Republican candidate. He is he is a football career away from being the made in a lab Republican candidate. Now he's going to be challenged by Matt Rosendale. He is one of the Freedom Caucus rabble rousers in the House. He already ran against John Tester and lost against him once. So I think Cook Political Reports is saying, you know, if Rosendale wins, then this is a toss up. If Rosendale loses and Sheehy is the guy, well, I would suspect that this goes into lean Republican territory. And I suspect that Sheehy is going to win that primary. Not only because Rosendale already lost once, but look, the Freedom Caucus isn't the same brand that it was even a few years ago. You've had a lot of fracturing. You've had some some losses. You know, Lauren Boebert came uh, fifth in a straw poll over the weekend for her new seat in, uh, in, in Colorado. I'll just say Freedom Caucus isn't exactly what it was. So let's let's put that there. Let's say she he uh, wins and electorally, you can't argue with double digits. You can only imagine that Donald Trump is going to drag a candidate, even if he's underwhelming, over the line of victory when Donald Trump is winning by anywhere between 16, 17, 22 points between those two elections. Then we come to Arizona. Arizona in 2016, Donald Trump won by three and a half points. In 2020, Biden won by a margin of 
1.03. Arizona is a very, very, very hotly contested race uh, or state when Donald Trump is on the ballot. He speaks to the people of Arizona in a way that other candidates do not. Carrie Lake, Carrie Lake is running as the Republican standard bearer. She will almost assuredly win that primary with Donald Trump's endorsement. Ruben Gallego is in all likelihood going to be the Democratic standard bearer. I still have questions about whether or not he's ready for prime time. He's got a little bit of a history to him, and I don't know if he is ready to be in front of the cameras in the kind of ways that he will. But that being said, he has won elected office before. He is the darling of the anti Kirsten Cinema left, which leads us to Kirsten Cinema. Will she run in this race? She has not announced that she's running this race. She, uh, when she became an independent, she ran a commercial that sounded a lot like a campaign uh, commercial, but we have not seen any announcement from her. Either way would shock me, and I really don't know how to handicap this race. I don't know if cinema comes in, whether or not that's good for Gallego or it's good for Lake. Because I've seen a lot of numbers that Kirsten Cinema would draw more from the I don't like MAGA, but I'm still a Republican crowd. But then again, if this comes down to the wire, where will people go home to? So this is a real toss up. I have no idea what's going to happen in Arizona. And then let's uh, uh, understand that it was one of the states that was flipped between 2016 and uh, 2020. But it's also a border state. Does the border factor into this more than it would otherwise? We'll see. Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is a solid Democrat. Ohio likes Sherrod Brown. Here's the problem. Ohio also really likes Donald Trump. In 2016, he won by eight. 0.07% over Hillary Clinton. And in 2020, a nearly identical margin, 8.1% over Joe Biden. Here's the reality. Depending on who makes it through that Ohio primary, and we don't know yet, but if they are just a generic lump of Republican, as long as they are not making problems for themselves, as long as they are sufficiently supplicant to Donald Trump, it's going to be hard for even Sherrod Brown to win in this state. If anyone's going to do it, it's him. And I think it is a testament to his ability to be a popular senator from Ohio that has this in toss up because. If we are imagining that Donald Trump is more popular in Ohio than he was in 2020, then we could be looking at a 10-point win for Trump. There's also the reality that the Biden campaign might not play in Ohio in the same way that they would otherwise, in the same way that Obama played in Ohio, the same way that 
uh, 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 Hillary played in Ohio. This might be, you know, let's shift that attention to Pennsylvania. Let's shift that attention to Michigan. Let's shift that attention to Wisconsin. Those are more realistic battlegrounds than former bellwethers like Ohio and Florida. We're not even mentioning Florida in this. All right, let's get into the leans. Michigan, again, open seat. In 2016, Donald Trump won Michigan by 0.3%. In 2020, Biden won Michigan 2.8% over Trump. That was a very good trend for the Democrats. Big swing. Trump barely wins in 2020. Uh, you know, look, 2.8% is not a lot. Not a lot of breathing room there, but still, you'd rather have that than not have it. This is where high turnout is going to be an issue. And look, in a presidential campaign, not only is this special because Donald Trump brings a certain voter to the polls, a voter that does not vote in other races, and they are likely to vote for Trump-endorsed candidates down ballot. But a high turnout election, which regardless of what you think about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, this will be higher turnout than off-year elections. That reduces the incumbent's advantage. An incumbent's advantage is better in low turnout elections because if there's low engagement, people don't know who the other guy is. You're like, oh, I don't know. I remember that person. I've seen him on the news. Boop. Not only is there no incumbents advantage in Michigan because Stabenow is off the ballot, but like the rest of these states, these are battlegrounds, all right? Nevada, Jackie Rosen. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won Nevada, margin of 2.4% over Donald Trump. And in 2020, Biden won over Donald Trump 2.4%. Nevada is Clark County. We're going to be heading there uh, over the weekend. We'll be telling the story of why everything in Nevada is so screwed up right now. Uh, I want to save some of this for our episode next week, but holy crap, I've been digging into this. This is a mess. This is a fiasco. And it stretches back to 2020. Harry Reid's involved. It's, it's, it's a mess. It is an absolute mess. But unlike some of these other states, this is the only one on the list that Democrats won both in 2016 and in 2020. There is no reason to believe that this might flip, but it is close enough that it will be hotly contested. Nevada is a state, Nevada is a kill shot state for the Republicans. If they can win there, they will likely win the election. But Nevada has shown, even though they just elected a Republican governor statewide, they did keep their senator during the off-year elections. So, very weird, very weird. But again, of these four seats that I'm reading in, in the toss-up, the ones that I would say I would bet on the Democrats the most is Jackie Rosen in Nevada. 
just because of the history that in both 2016 and 2020, you saw Clark County, which is most of Nevada, reject Donald Trump enough on a consistent margin. And then they also rejected the last Republican senator. Pennsylvania. So Bob Casey has not had a real uh, challenger in a while. If Donald Trump is going to win the presidency again, he is going to have to win Pennsylvania. This is probably the biggest jump ball that we are going to see in this election. The most consequential state in 2016, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by 0.7 in 2020. Joe Biden won Pennsylvania by 1.2. Whoever gets this and it's never by a big margin wins the presidency. And so you now have David McCormick, who is likely going to be the Republican nominee there, who is not Dr. Oz. This is kind of going to be the opposite of the Oz Fetterman race, where you had a political neophyte who was running a quixotic campaign going against a progressive then firebrand who had just had a stroke. A lot of variables there. I don't suspect we're going to see a lot of variables here. Because of that, I do think you're going to get a little bit of incumbent advantage on the Democratic side. But this, to me, is a very coattailsy race. If Donald Trump can win, then McCormick has a shot. And we're going to see a lot of money and time poured in to Pennsylvania. And then finally, Wisconsin. In 2016, Donald Trump won by point oh by point three over Hillary Clinton. In 2020, Biden won by point six. Oh wait, sorry, I got that wrong. Donald Trump won by point seven over Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin, and then Biden won by point six in Wisconsin. This, you, you want to know what? I, I was kind of shocked when I looked at that because for whatever reason, I always thought that Wisconsin was more liberal than Pennsylvania, but Wisconsin has been a squeaker. Look, there's a reason why the Republican presidential primary, or sorry, the, the Republican convention is going to be held in Milwaukee, Algonquin for the good land. It's going to be in Wisconsin. Because they need Wisconsin. If you win Wisconsin, you probably win Michigan. And so Tammy Baldwin's going to have the incumbent's advantage, but he's going to get a real race. And obviously, a lot of these, we don't know who the Republican's going to be, so it's hard to make final determinations. It's so funny when you look at this map, I'm showing the map here on, on our video version. When you look at this map, it's crazy that all of the toss up States also have democratic senators that are going to be fighting for their lives. But considering to me, when you just look at this, you are starting the night with Republicans up one, because I think Tester's going to lose in, in Montana. You're starting the night there. 
The question isn't going to be, will the Republicans regain the Senate? Long time between here and there, but from this vantage point right now, at the end of January 2024, it looks like for sure the Republicans regain the Senate. It's how bad is it by the end of the night? And just because of the map, this is a brutal map for Democrats. Which brings us one last final coda here. Right now, Joe Biden's best electoral strategy, in my opinion, is abortion in the morning, abortion in lunchtime, abortion a few times before dinner. Talk about abortion access. Talk about what is happening when it comes to women's reproductive rights. Talk about overbroad trigger laws that are not popular in a lot of even red states. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of doubt, a lot of anger around this issue. You can get Democrats to the polls on this issue. And right now, the Biden strategy on this is reinstating Roe. Okay. Well, if you want to reinstate Roe, you're going to need 60 votes in the Senate. And as I just laid out here, you're probably starting with negative one. On a good night where Joe Biden wins the presidency, you're going to be at negative one. You're going to be at 49 seats. The Republicans are going to have 51. And I don't think in the midterms where the party in power normally doesn't do well that you're going to gain 11. So that means that the promise that you are making about this second term is I'll be nice and say unrealistic. In my opinion, based on this map, The Democrats need, Joe Biden 2024 needs to have a more cogent and coherent abortion strategy if they want to make this real. It's not just, we're going to reinstate Roe. It's, of course, the goal is to reinstate Roe. But in the meantime, Here are the things we are going to do to ensure federally a woman's health. Here's what we are going to do to ensure that women who want to be pregnant are not put in danger because of overbroad trigger laws that a lot of politicians that wrote them never thought were going to go into effect. They were messaging laws in deep red states. That, to me, is something that's tangible, something that is real, something that shows competency on an issue that they really, really speak to. They own. Because if your path is through the Senate for something this important, who boy. I just don't see how the math works.
This is your update. Brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you, everybody, who makes this dream come true. Independent political analysis that not only sits here in the comfy crib in Austin, Texas, but no, makes their way out. We were on the ground in Iowa, and I told you exactly how that caucus was going to go. We were on the ground in New Hampshire, and I told you that the Nikki Haley situation was a fugazi. And I'm going to Nevada this weekend, and I'm going to tell you why this situation, and it's going to get a lot of coverage over the weekend when this happens, because it is a absolute fiasco what's happening in Nevada. Absolutely. There's a caucus and a primary. The reason why is hilarious. It is. I'm actually going to try and I'm lining up a bunch of interviews because I don't know how many campaign events are going to be there because, again, it's a fiasco. But we will we will line up a bunch of uh, a bunch of interviews. We will talk to everybody and it's going to be it's going to be crazy. But the reason why all this is what it is is so funny. It is really, 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 really funny. But I want to save some of it for for the actual episode. Let's get to your update. The U.S. Senate is moving forward with a significant piece of legislation that addresses both funding for Ukraine and border security reforms. The move comes despite warnings from House Speaker Mike Johnson that the bill may not progress in the House of Representatives. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and his allies believe that if the Senate, with substantial Republican backing and... Well, remains to be seen whether or not it'll have that. But if it passes the bill, it will create pressure on Johnson to consider it in the lower chamber. The bill is crucial as it addresses two key issues, support for Ukraine and its ongoing conflict and substantial reforms to manage migration across the southern U.S. border. Now, there is a strategic calculation behind the Senate's push. Republicans in the Senate, led by McConnell, view this as an opportunity to demonstrate governance capabilities that address significant national concerns. Reminder, the border is polling at number one across political parties. However, the bill does face opposition, notably from former, possibly future, President Donald Trump, who sees it as a win for Democrats and is urging Republicans to oppose it. Situation is further complicated by internal Republican dynamics and the potential political fallout of rejecting the bill. Senate conservatives, including Senator Ted Cruz, have criticized McConnell's approach, arguing that it undermines the House Republicans and only serves to provide leverage for Democrats. But despite these challenges, the Senate is forging ahead, believing the bill's success could signify a major victory for Republican governance. The latest rumors on this bill is that it's going to actually drop next week. Part of what has made this so divisive is the fact that nobody's really seen this bill. You've seen Senator Lankford, who has been negotiating it, say, whoa, 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 whoa. Any crazy stuff that you've heard about what this bill is or isn't, don't believe it. Nobody's seen it. This isn't an amnesty bill. This isn't a let 5,000 migrants a day in bill. It's totally different. Is it? We don't know. We haven't seen the bill. 
But according to the rumors, according to what uh, Speaker Johnson hears, it's DOA. As to the question of where this lands politically, depending on what's in the bill, it's a big if, I don't think this is a loss for Republicans. I don't think that this is a win for Biden. I think forcing Biden to be border close man is good for Donald Trump because it really, really, really shatters some of the the most energetic Biden voters uh, on the left. It it really kind of puts puts a hammer to their coalition. And then also you could say, yeah, but he's going to reopen it. Joe Biden's going to reopen the border. That's even if, or or you can say that this is a half measure and a half measure is better. You know, look, that Joe Biden put a Band-Aid on, on a bullet hole. Shout out to Taylor Swift. It's better than not doing anything. But it's not what we actually need. What we actually need is what Trump was doing. Like, I don't know. I, I just don't see this as, you know, if you allow the Republicans, sorry, the Democrats and Joe Biden to clap his hands together and say, job's done, then yeah, you, you've, you've given him a significant win. But I don't think that you're going to have that be an issue, nor do I think that the, the problems that are besieging a lot of Democratic cities are going to go away by November. You don't just dump that amount of people into New York and Chicago and have it not be a problem. In international news, the UK under Foreign Secretary David Cameron is considering recognizing a Palestinian state in the United Nations. The initiative, part of Cameron's plan to resolve the Gaza conflict, aims to make progress toward a two-state solution. Cameron, speaking to the conservative Middle East Council, highlighted the need to outline the structure of a Palestinian state. The UK's proposal faces opposition from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who seeks full Israeli control over the region. Cameron's five-point plan includes a push for a new international support package for Gaza, the formation of a new Palestinian government for the West Bank and Gaza, removing Hamas's ability to attack Israel, releasing Israeli hostages held by Hamas, and the removal of quote-unquote key Hamas leaders from Gaza. This strategy reflects the UK stance that a two-state solution is the only viable long-term resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The devil's in the details, my friends. A lot of those five points, you don't get clean answers on. Exactly which key Hamas leaders are you removing? Are they going voluntarily or are they being removed? Who's going to remove them? Because by the way, the IDF is trying to remove them permanently. How fast does this happen? I wonder with a proposal like this, whether or not it's a serious proposal or whether or not it's just a fancy way for the UK to say we are all in on a two-state solution, which has been American policy for ever. You know, every president in my lifetime has on some level worked toward diplomatically a two-state solution. 
the problem for folks who have followed this for a while is exactly what that looks like. Because, again, there's no clear consensus here. There is no clear POV on who is leading the Palestinian state, how their government is structured, what their relationship to Israel is. Can they have a military? A lot of very, very, very serious questions that need to be asked if you're going to walk down this road. And I don't know if the UK and their infinite ability to uh, you know, tell other countries how they can set things up, I don't know if this is actually pushing forward with that. But, you know, David Cameron, look at him. He's doing things still. Finally, President Joe Biden is confronting escalating tensions in the Middle East following the death of three American soldiers in Jordan attributed to Iran-backed groups. This development adds complexity to the political landscape as Biden considers a range of responses that aim to deter future attacks without exacerbating regional instability. His administration's approach emphasizes caution and strategic deliberation, avoiding hasty actions while acknowledging the necessity for a response to protect American lives and interests. His direct quote after the death of three servicemen was, we shall respond. The situation challenges Biden's presidency with various political factions advocating for different levels of retaliation. Congressional Republicans and some Democrats urge a more forceful response, while other advocates for restraint to prevent a broader conflict. Internally, the Biden administration is weighing military options, including possible strikes on Iranian assets. The incident has heightened the stakes for Biden's foreign policy, particularly as he navigates the complexity of the Israeli-Hamas conflict, support for Ukraine, and domestic pressures of an election year. Okay. This is the closest that we are at to a hot war with a foreign power. Ukraine, eh, money, support, Israel, less money, support, strong support. We have, you know, the Biden administration is not, aside from some leaks and some maybe internal communications, come out and said that Israel needs to stop. But this was an Iranian-backed terror group that killed three servicemen. What's the response there? It's in the first time we've seen stuff like this. Donald Trump attacked. You know, he drone struck and killed Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Quds Force. That was a big play. Big play. Big retaliation for Iranian hostility. What's Biden's response? We will all wait and see. That's your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you want two bonus episodes each and every week. The bonus episode next Monday will be live and direct from glittering Las Vegas, Nevada for our Nevada caucus and primary coverage. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Three bucks a week. Thank you to everybody who has signed up. We've had a great response so far. 
I greatly appreciate it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. With a bit of a lull on the primary calendar, we have some time to talk dollars and cents. Fundraising for not only the presidential race, but everything down ballot. And if we're going to do that, we got to bring on the money man, Dave Leventhal from Raw Story. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. A, de- a delight to be back with you. We we did a little bit of commiserating before we started recording on your Buffalo Bills, uh, which which continue to uh, break hearts, which they've done in in uh, for, for for Western New York for their entire existence, right? Pretty pretty much. So if you're you know Vivek Ramaswamy or or Ron DeSantis or any of the rest, uh, you you can take solace in in the fact that uh, <laughs> there are other people out there who are even feeling greater pain. Yeah, given the losses that they have endured, than you. You, you, twenty twenty four candidate, you. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and start with twenty twenty four. I I feel like unlike last cycle, we haven't had gigantic eye popping money numbers that that have sort of dominated the conversation. Is that because the money hasn't flowed like it did in twenty twenty, or are we just used to it now? It's because the conversation has not been focused on it. And and this is kind of a fascinating phenomenon. Uh, Open Secrets, the essential nonprofit organization that tracks money, uh, full disclosure, a former editorial director over there, uh, they came out with an amazing statistic, which totally flew below the radar, which was that about about $308 million worth of Outside money, so money's coming from super PACs and and nonprofit organizations, it have flown into the primary season, and and that's about twice as much as we had yeah. at the same period of time in 2016. So, all right, you know, you don't have to do the math, but it sure seemed like with Jeb Bush and Donald Trump and all the characters running in 2016 that there was just a heck of a lot more money flowing into the system. There, there was way more spending. But the fact of the matter is, is when you measure it up even, even 2016 yeah. to 2024, that actually isn't the case. But nobody would know because Donald Trump has been so dominant. And in Joe Biden, it's just been a cakewalk. So that is beyond just the the rate of inflation. There, there is even adjusted for that. There's just more money in the system right now. We're just kind of not talking about it. And this is not inflation adjusted, but even if you adjust for inflation, it's still significantly more than it was eight years ago. And it really speaks to, in a way, the uh, Donald Trump incumbency factor. Now, Donald Trump is not the incumbent president, but for all intents and purposes, he is the incumbent president in the minds of most Republicans who are going to support him no matter what he does, what he says. And they're just going to stay with him. Otherwise, we would still have a Ron DeSantis in the race. We, we would still have a, maybe a Chris Christie or a Tim Scott, but we yeah. don't because he's just proven himself to be that dominant. Now, Donald Trump's supportive organizations have been spending a very solid amount of money, well into the tens of millions of dollars. Nikki Haley's super PAC called the SFA Fund, it's been spending just short of $100 million at this point. And, and what has it gotten her? So the Donald Trump incumbency factor is real. The Donald Trump incumbency factor is dominant. And no matter what anyone has done, yeah. and no matter how much money has been spent, none of it has really made a dime's worth of difference 
to the overall trajectory of the race. Simple as that. The other thing money-wise that I've noticed in this cycle, and you saw it specifically with Ron DeSantis, and it caused his campaign tremendous consternation because nobody knew exactly who the captain was, is the full deputization of super PACs to not only do air cover and flyers and possibly organization and stuff like that, but you saw Never Back Down run his campaign. He They were organizing the events. It was only television expenditures and even then never back then was also buying those that the official campaign was doing have we seen even more of a reliance on super PACs for some of these campaigns compared to cycles past yes and Ron DeSantis is the ultimate example of this here in 2024 and on one hand we should step back here one second to say that well what is a super PAC at, at its yeah. core a super PAC is nominally an outside organization that is not supposed to be run by the candidate's own committee or people. It's supposed to, by its nature, be independent, but can support and spend, raise, spend money with unlimited amounts to support a candidate that it likes, or for that matter, to oppose a candidate that it doesn't like. And in the case of Ron DeSantis's Never Back Down Incorporated Super PAC, he had really just taken this sort of to the extreme and, and in essence had, if not a wholly owned subsidiary of his own campaign committee, about the closest thing that you could get to having that. Yeah. And on one hand, it seems like it would be a huge advantage, right? Because, hey, the group can raise unlimited amounts of money. It can spend whatever it wants, whenever it wants to. And, and it's not going to be beholden to the campaign finance limitations that federal law set forth. So you in essence have either a shadow campaign or a parallel campaign or call it what you want. But the reality of it is it didn't work. <laughs> and, no. and Ron DeSantis had, had a, just a, a notoriously awful time trying to figure out the, the lines of delineation between his own campaign committee and the super PAC. And there are still, weak as they are, laws in place that say you cannot directly, directly coordinate between the super PAC and the candidate committee. And as they try to do this dance and, and they try to beat Donald Trump and raise all this money, it ended up just being a complete abject and utter disaster, as we saw in Iowa yeah. and in the several days after when game was over. You know, to, to use a couple football analogies here, when you have two campaign managers, you have none, just like when you have two quarterbacks, you have none. And and the other side of this is that football and politics, especially presidential politics, tend to be copycat leagues. You just take the thing that was done well by another winning campaign and you try to replicate it or goose it or take it to the next level. We've seen increasing super PAC participation. This was the biggest that you've ever done, but much like Dan Campbell going for those fourth downs on Sunday and coming up uh, three points short when he gave up six points in those decisions. I feel like we might be now stepping back from that, that, that the next time that we have big presidential campaigns that are ramping up, that the super PAC will be kind of back to what it was maybe in the 2018, 2016 realm of spend money on flyers help us identify which voters are, are are to be targeted. But other than that, we can run our own events. We can run our own strategy. Thank you. Right. And, and 
everyone is like, oh, and innovation, something new, something shiny, and it, and it seems like it's going to be a good thing, a silver bullet for Ron DeSantis to knock Donald Trump off in the Republican primary. And and again, it it was a failure. And you better believe that all the other campaigns, such as they are, are, are looking at this and come 2028, <laughs> when we're talking about that in four and a half years, you know, lessons will have been learned. Yeah. I, I think you've seen along the way a number of different super PAC innovations or experiences where there were adjustments made and recalibrations that were put into place as a result of of successes and failures. And we mentioned Jeb Bush a moment ago. Jeb Bush was sort of the ultimate example in 2016 of something that just simply didn't work. And they tried to, in essence, win the campaign by raising Boku bucks and spending so much of it on on TV. And, yeah. and that just didn't serve to serve the purpose of helping Jeb Bush in the way that he needed to be helped. And so, yeah, like Ron DeSantis in 2024, um, it, it's sort of the ultimate playbook for what not to do. And a lot of candidates are, are going to be studying that very closely. Let's touch on our two front runners here before we move down ballot. Donald Trump and Joe Biden obviously leading their their charges. It, it is fait accompli that that will be our matchup barring health situations or or a legal situation on the Trump side that shakes up this snow globe. Money-wise, anything surprising or interesting, or are these guys just raising money hand over fist like we have seen front runners do? So we're having this conversation a couple days before we are going to get official hard numbers from Donald Trump, yeah. from Joe Biden, and from everyone else down ballot as to how much they raised, how much they spent, do they have any debt, uh, who are their donors, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think the easy answer to what we expect we're going to see is that Joe Biden and Donald Trump both are going to have plenty of money all across their entire sprawling operation to run their campaigns in a general election phase. Now, of course, Donald Trump still faces Nikki Haley. There's the Nevada caucuses coming up. There's South Carolina, we've got Super Tuesday, but something, of course, absolutely shocking, revolutionary, yeah. and monumental would have to happen for the nature of this race to change away from the victory march uh, onto Milwaukee that Donald Trump is likely going to have. That being said, he's still going to have to spend some money in the primary phase. Yeah. We're going to be looking at nine figures for both of them without question when we get uh, Holy when, moly. when we have uh, cash on hand and, and raise numbers, maybe a little bit less for Trump on the cash on hand. But we also need to remember, like, what are we actually talking about here when we're talking about money that's being raised? Now, Joe Biden has already come out and previewed his numbers a little bit. A few weeks ago, he said, well, we're going to have a huge, huge end of 2023 to report. So these numbers are going to come out. They're going to show what the candidates had raised and spent during the last three months of 2023. And and it's very easy to just focus on the candidate's own campaign committee, which yeah. is the mothership. Of course, you're going to focus on it. But let's remember that, and Joe Biden did this, that these candidates are going to try to gin their numbers up and juice them as much as they possibly can. And Joe Biden did exactly that. So he put out this vague number. It was a big number. It was 
97 million that we've raised, you know, that, that we've raised all across the board. 97 million for the cause. For the cause. And what yeah. is the cause? Well, that's the candidates committee. It's associated political action committees and super PACs and joint fundraising committees and party committees. And you, you just kind of glob it all together and, and you get a big number and everyone's excited and they think you're doing well. So, you know, the money game is so much about the hard dollar, sure, that you actually have. But yeah, as much as anything, it's about perception. It's about momentum. And you want people to believe that you are doing well. So, ta-da, they're going to give you more money in the future. There Simple we go. That. I also don't know, and this is kind of a meta point. I don't know that there will be an election in my lifetime where money is spent more for nothing. Because these candidates are so defined, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. The one thing that all of America can agree on is we kind of have an opinion on these guys. They've been around for a while that we've talked about them for a very, very long time. So when you look at these gigantic numbers, obviously they're staffing, you're running a nationwide campaign. You want to make sure that you are hiring the best people, that you're deploying them where you need to be. And, and you can have the cash to not want for anything. But at the same time, what ads are either of these guys going to run that's going to do any kind of change? I mean, I guess negative ads to the other one, maybe to, to gin up negative feelings. But even then, I kind of feel like we're close to full on the tank in positive and negative feelings about the both of these two. Well, at a, at a most basic level, you you have to have money. Uh, any yes. candidate has you to need have it. Money. You need it. Presidential. And, more, and more is better. Right. Uh, presidential dog catcher, you anything in between. You, you yes. have to have money or the odds of you being successful are are next to nil if, if, if you don't have resources. Yeah. But resources can't alone win you an election. Resources alone cannot buy Joe Biden a fountain of youth. It's not going to yeah. turn him into 50-year-old Joe Biden. Uh, all the money in the world and all the resources in the world are not going to make Donald Trump's legal troubles go away. So if you have the money and, and you have the, those requisite resources, well, what are you going to do with them? And I think the answer to that question we're going to see in very sharp relief beginning really in February and in, in March at the latest, when we go into a true general election phase yeah. and, and the primary season is probably officially over. Nikki Haley may stick around, but, but let's just say it's Joe Biden, Donald Trump for basically the rest of this year. You're going to see the two of them go at it in ways that are going to be wildly negative. Yes. That are going to try to beat up the other person in, in ways perhaps we've never even seen before in the history of modern politics. So the, the money is going to be spent on, on a lot of that. Now, yes, Joe Biden is probably going to do his best, his level best to focus on successes that he's had policy-wise. Uh, the things that he has done as president of the United States during the three years that he has been in the White House. He will talk about infrastructure. He will talk about jobs. He will talk about labor statistics and, and on and on. But at the same time, too, you look at any poll that's out there right now, you look at any study or survey that has been taken, and Nobody's excited about Joe Biden. And I don't know if all the money in the world will get people excited about Joe Biden in a way that that alone is going to propel him to victory. So what is he to do? 
Well, he's going to do some of that, but he's also going to use, I think, the bulk of his resources to aim squarely at Donald Trump and talk about issues of democracy, to talk about issues of authoritarianism, to talk about all the things that will happen or would happen to this country in his estimation if Donald Trump becomes a second-term president and pulls the old Grover Cleveland and serves two non-consecutive terms. You know, there is no amount of money that's going to make for Donald Trump that will make his legal problems go away. Now, money from Fonnie Willis's boyfriend, that might <laughs> that might do something, but we will see how that plays out down there in Georgia. Let's move down ballot. Uh this is around the time that we start to see big numbers from people in some of these key races that tends to be some of the earliest signs of who we are going to watch as we go forward, which races are going to be extraordinarily competitive. If somebody's coming out of nowhere to raise a ton of money, who down ballot should we be keeping an eye on? Well, we've got, uh, we've got, first of all, to set the stage, we, we have both the house and the Senate up for grabs here. Yes. Okay. Very it's up for grabs. possible that the Democrats could, could be in control of the house and the Senate when all is said and done entirely possible that the Republicans could be yes. in control of the House and the Senate when all is said and done. So the focus is going to be just that much more on those toss-up races, or maybe the slightly lean Democrat or the slightly lean Republican races. And and you're going to have, and we've seen this many election cycles, say the past four or five election cycles, particularly as online fundraising has come into full flourish and and it's so easy to donate, but we're going to see a nationalization in a most major way in those toss-up or close races. Yeah, and it's going to involve money that in some some of these Senate races, where ninety-nine percent of the cash that's raised in, say, the let's just pick on Montana. John yeah. Tester is trying to win re-election. He is a Democratic senator in, in a red state. Well. 99 plus percent of the money that's going to flow into Montana, (laughs) which is going to be into the tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars, is going to come from anywhere but Montana. And it ain't going to be from Billings. It is not going to be from Bozeman. It is not going to be from Helena. (laughs) Uh, As much as, you know, those are wonderful places. Uh, It's going to be from California and it's going to be from Texas and it's going to be from Florida and New York. And and that uh, is going to very much be replicated in many of the other key Senate races across the country. And also to some of these House races, which are not going to necessarily be really like high wattage, high profile on the national news every night, but are going to make the difference between, yeah. again, whether Democrats or Republicans control the House because... Republicans only have a handful of seats that give them the majority as things are right now. So if you're, you know, lucky enough to be a resident of, I don't know, New Jersey seven or Washington three or (laughs) Michigan eight, then you're going to be bombarded with. You're going to get a lot of ads and ads and, and people who are knocking on doors and, and the whole nine yards. And you might be scratching your head saying, well, what's what's going on here? Why why am why are we getting so much attention here? And and the answer is 
It has nothing to do with the, the local politics of your district. And it has everything to do with the politics of Washington and, and the, the balance of power on Capitol Hill. And that's why there's going to be 15 or 20 or $50 million spent in your little corner of your one state. And, and that's just the stakes. And, and that's what is at stake. So Senate wise, we're looking at West Virginia, Montana, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Those would probably be the four most likely blue to red flips. And this is a bad map for the Democrats this year. They've got more liability on their side of the ledger than the Republicans do just because of how the cycle falls. But but those four, are there any other big Senate races that you think will see a ton of money? Yeah. And, and you know, I think Arizona could could absolutely yeah. be on that list, too. And that's a, largely going to depend in part on, on what uh, Kirsten Cinema does and, yeah. and the kind of race that that she runs. This is going to be in all likelihood a three way race. Uh, so so that's huge. The New Jersey Senate race, Bob Menendez, I, I don't think a a Democrat is going to lose that race, but it's an opportunity for Republicans to at least cause trouble. Um, Pennsylvania's race is a big one too. So Bob Casey's trying to win re-election there. He's been a senator forever, but he's going to have uh, a a very a you know non Doctor Oz challenger, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, but still nevertheless a, a very strong Republican challenge likely there. Uh, you could add maybe Wisconsin and Nevada uh, to the list as well. Mm-hmm. Michigan has an open seat. So there, there's definitely some action to be had and mentioned Montana. That, that's going to be one that that is maybe the most curious of them all. So, yeah, buckle up. Uh, I, I don't think Texas is really going to be in play. Ted Cruz is running for re-election. Well, let's, let's talk about that, because I used to joke on this show with Hillary Clinton that she was the star maker, because if you look at her electoral career, there was no better way for you to become a national level money machine than running against Hillary Clinton. And I am here to say that we have a new star maker and his name is Ted Cruz because whoever looks like they are going to go against him, he is just operating at a certain level in our political frequency that Democrats just like Pavlov's dog, Ted Cruz is running who can I send money to defeat him? Colin Allred looks like he is the front runner to be that guy. And he announced some pretty decent fundraising, right? He he sure did. And it's still a, it's still a democratic primary there. He's got a couple of challengers, but in all likelihood, when, when the votes are taken uh, in the democratic primary in Texas, Allred's going to be coming out. The other end is, is the victor, but the, the better O'Rourke factor looms large. Mm-hmm. You could be God's gift to democratic politics. And can you actually win in Texas? Yeah. And, and O'Rourke at least proved up to that point that no, you couldn't. And all the money in the world, historic fundraising numbers, the the legions of support that he seemed to receive could only get him really within about three percentage points of of a Senate victory. In in, and, in a very good market for Democrats. It was, Wonderful it was the, off year, the off year uh, elections. The party in power normally gets slaughtered. And, and he was part of that, that trio of very highly covered yet just shy 
disappointment between him, Stacey Abrams, and uh, 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 the man whose name escapes me that lost to Ron DeSantis in Florida by less than a point. And, you know, you you got to take into consideration that the demographics of Texas continue to shift. Yep. Every year that goes by, the demographics are different. Ted Cruz also has a track record that is uh, six years longer than he did when he last ran for the Senate and has said and done lots of things that uh, have endeared himself uh, to his base, but also infuriated people who are already predisposed to not liking Ted Cruz and wanting to vote for him. So will Texas become a purple state at some point in the future? Almost certainly it will. But we've been talking a long, long time about Texas becoming a purple state. I don't think anyone can say in all fairness that it's there yet. And and Ted Cruz is an incumbent. So he has that as well. Now, Albright is a member of Congress. There is that. He's got profile. He's got his football resume. I mean, he's a a compelling character. He He is the kind of person that in conversations that I've had with Texas Democrats, they desperately want in the general and find themselves hard pressed to get through their primary. Now it looks like Colin Allred is going to get through the primary, but he is not somebody that feels quite as squishy as Beto. So maybe he doesn't have the same uh, uh, zeal and glee from certain voters, but he is somebody that you can talk to your parents about maybe thinking about voting for uh, in, in a way that Beto didn't really have the discipline for he, he he found himself talking about Colin Kaepernick kneeling in a place in a, in a race where him shutting his mouth probably would have uh, uh, possibly been the difference considering how close it wound up being. Yeah. And Allred's a African-American politician and mm-hmm. that is going to be very appealing uh, to Democrats in the sense that a whole huge segment of the Texas democratic population and population in general um, maybe invigorated by his candidacy in a way that would be a little bit different than Beto O'Rourke. We will see. And people are going to get very, very sick of hearing of the comparisons between O'Rourke <laughs> and Allred. All right, uh, yeah. It's the best that we've got at this point. And, and Allred definitely is making a compelling case for himself to be somebody who at least is going to give Ted Cruz a significant run for his money. And uh, a, a lot could happen between now and in November where, where Ted Cruz could uh, also in, in, not endear himself to, to people who are kind of on the fence or are independent-minded enough. And there are a good number in Texas, as you well know, who, who legitimately will stay home or not, depending on the strength and the compelling nature of the candidates or lack thereof. Yeah, look... Uh- if you want to win as a Democrat in Texas, you got to really light the cities on fire. You got to light Dallas on fire. Austin's going to be blue no matter what. But Houston, th- these are the places where you need to win, and you need to win at, at such a significant margin that you can tilt the map. San Antonio and El Paso. It's San Antonio and El Paso. Yeah. yeah. But the real question is, and this is going against All Red, we're not in an off year election now. This is a presidential election and Donald Trump is very popular in the state of Texas. So you're going to have the coattails there. And then also we don't know where this border issue is going to be by the time that November rolls around. I mean, 
Four years ago, Joe Biden was talking about reversing Donald Trump's racist policies. This weekend, he's saying, give me bipartisan legislation and I'll shut the border down today. So we, we, we went from AOC to Pat Buchanan in three and a half years from, <laughs> from the top of the Democratic Party. God knows where this is going to be by the time that November rolls around, which might be a help to All Red, because if he can run as a shut the border Democrat, that's that might be a coalition that can go against Ted Cruz, who historically runs anywhere between six to eight points below other Republicans in the state. Yeah, and it's a absolutely fantastic point across the board, but specifically in Texas. Joe Biden yes. just didn't wake up one day and was like, oh, I'm going to do almost a 180 on my my border <laughs> on, I, on on my day one campaign promises i'm gonna i'm gonna give me as long as we can unlock money for ukraine sure yeah i'm gonna shut the border down i, I i've talked to a few democrats here in dc who are like it it's necessary but wow is it cynical and and but it's also something too that may be a necessity not just for joe biden but for key races all across the country where border issues are huge and big oh, time yeah. in cities Arizona, that has a border, right? Uh, yeah. Texas, that, that has a border too. States like Florida, w- which don't have the same kind of border. Well, they, that kind of matters as well as, uh, you know, given the number of, uh, of migrants and other states who are, are feeling the pressures that, uh, that come with the way that border issues are manifesting themselves in the East and in the West. And these are key states as well. So it's an issue that people clearly have on their mind and yeah. something that I think is going to to be potentially a, a significant weapon against Republicans if the Democrats can say, oh, all this border talk that the Republicans are giving you, it it's nonsense. Look at what we're doing right here and right now while we are in power. And it, it's a definite, definite, very obvious move to undercut the argument that Republicans are making. And and dinging the heck out of Democrats over month after month after month. That is, it is an attempt at a game changer. Whether it will be or not, we will yeah, see. Yeah, but it's a try. We're gonna we're gonna see it. And I think to to more pursuant to what we talk about uh, in these conversations, electorally, look, the border is going to be what it is. I've I've been surprised in the primary that it's the number one issue in places yeah. like Iowa and New Hampshire. That is something that I. The the border and immigration is always kind of a higher issue nationally than people give it credit for. But that this is on a level that I've never seen before. When you see the numbers on like Democrats favorability toward deportations, not even the border deportations, that's a different story. And part of it is because it's affecting cities like Chicago, like New York, where not only look, those are not electorally Illinois and New York state are not electorally in in danger for for the Democrats. But their fundraising base is there, the piggy bank. and and a you lot don't want to hurt the piggy bank. And a lot of those commuter areas in Long Island and stuff like that; those are the kind of districts that will probably decide the house. Yep, you know, the, uh, L.A. Like, like th- this is it, this is an issue that, as the cities become more focused on it, it is resonant. And I think that there is a reason why this has become something that. Biden wants to pull the big U-turn on. Remember that George Santos guy? Remember him? Yeah. In yeah. Congress? Yeah. He's, he's there's a little special election coming up there. Well, there's going to be another election in November in, in that district too. So 
you, you brought a perfect ge- geographic example to, mm-hmm. to the fore here. And, and that's where an issue like immigration is, is so essential because that is, for all intents and purposes, a toss-up or near-toss-up race where issues such as that are going to be absolutely huge and, and could actually mean the difference between it tipping red or tipping blue. I mean, I think we're we're at what uh, uh, R plus two in the house right now, <laughs> depending yeah. on that that Santos special. So uh, we will we will see. There is no guarantee that that uh, any seat any seat can decide the, the the fate of the house right now. And so you are going to see a lot of that uh, being fought on. And I do think that's part of the reason why Biden is trying to reshape this, even though. It's also already pissed off a lot of his coalition, and and that's that's going to be the issue going forward. But anyway, now now we're into X's and O's on on the politics. Uh, any other big fundraising or money tidbits that you have noticed in this cycle as we wait for official numbers? Well, this is a little quirky here, but we've been tracking it at Raw Story, and, and and worth noting, I think, in the context of our conversation today, which is you may remember the. Presidential Election Campaign Fund. This is a public government-controlled fund that presidential candidates would use and that taxpayers would fuel. And maybe you check that little box off on your tax return oh, yeah, for yeah, yeah. $3. That, mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about here. And Alexandria Jacobson, one of our investigative reporters who's, who's been doing some crack work on this stuff, she... Uh, her most recent story put the dollar figure of the money sitting in that fund literally collecting dust at well north of $400 million, soon to be $500 million. So the next time that some member of Congress is belly aching about, we don't have enough money for this, yeah. or we don't have enough money for that, yeah. well, you can kind of thank Barack Obama in a way for he, killing he, that system. Dead. He denied. He denied the funds, right? He, he he opted out of the system in the general election of 2008. John McCain kept his promise and said, "Actually, I will. I will continue to go forward, being the McCain Feingold campaign finance yep. reformer that he was." And and no general election candidate for either major party has taken that money since. Yeah. And the system is still in place, even though it is functionally dead, and people continue to check their little box on their income tax return, and the money just keeps growing and growing and growing. And, you know, 20 seconds more on this, we, we asked members of Congress, well, what should be done with this? How could this money be repurposed? Because yeah. it will literally take an act of Congress to go and do something else with it. Rank the fund, yeah. Lots of people have lots of ideas, everything from, well, we need to we need to remake the system and we need to do better. Well, you know, that ship has sailed 16 years ago. But hey, could we give it to charity? Could we use it for some other governmental purpose? Could we just give it back to the Treasury's general fund? Uh, I don't know, balance the budget or reduce the sure. national debt. Lots of things. But in the meantime, that money just continues to sit there and I don't know about you, but I could think of a lot of things that that I could do for, I don't know, half a billion dollars. Open up a Betterment account. We can be earning money on this. It would be amazing. (laughs) Come on. Come on. This will take 15 bucks. You could or 50 minutes. You could do it on your lunch break. Give it to the Buffalo Bills to help pay some salaries next year. I know you guys are in cap hell now, right? This was this was the uh, this was the big 
the big moment. You think Diggs comes back? Yeah, but but he, he's he's not a happy man these days. Well, you know, also he was dropping a little too many passes to be a guy that mad. You know, he, he, he could have caught that sixty-five yard bomb in the uh, AFC division. Would have been nice. That would have been, been a good time. That would have been a good time to have a, a different team, uh, other other than Kansas City, going to the Super Bowl. But we digress. Well, my 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 condolences. You know, uh, as we both have our our shared connection with uh, upstate New York, that that Western New York always has a soft spot in my heart, and I will be rooting for the Bills next year, as though as I am always rooting for everything involved with Dave Leventhal. Uh, where can people find more of your work? You, you can find it at rawstory.com. I would encourage you to go there, read our work, sign up for our newsletter, and you can always just ping me directly. I'm easy to find, and I'd be, be happy to point you to lots of fun things that we're doing on the investigative end especially, and there is tons of it. Well, tell you what, everybody keep an eye out. Thank you so much, Dave. My pleasure. Thank you. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank our money man, Dave Leventhal, please go ahead and uh, hit him up. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. Hey, you can follow, find, and share video clips and live streams from me and this show. You ever thought, oh, you want to know what? I heard something really cool on the show. I want to share it with my friend. Well, chances are I probably made a video clip of it because we've been creating video versions of this show. I'm on a set now. And you can do that on the platform of your choice. TikTok is Justin R. Young. Instagram is Justin R. Young. And on YouTube, it is youtube.com slash at sign politics, politics, politics. And also, we're live streaming there, too. Not only our Twitch account at PX3 Live, but we're restreaming it to all of those platforms, except for TikTok. I need a 1,000 followers on TikTok, so go ahead, follow, go ahead and go ahead and get on the Justin R. Young train on TikTok. Head on over there. I need a 1,000 followers so I can stream live there at the same time to everybody. And I usually do that three times a week. If you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can find the show's Twitter account where I also share those video clips at px3tweets. Find me at Justin R. Young. And you can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. You can support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury on Venmo, where money's not real. Look, you got a little money in Venmo? You want to toss me a $5 bill? I'll, I'll buy a bartender a drink. Or no, well, I'll buy somebody a drink at the bar. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes the bartenders drink. But in Vegas, I can get some scoop. Although most of the bars, I don't know. They're usually serving tours. Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash. And you can send me anything in the mail. P.O. Box. 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. 
Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Sam, John, Meister, Edwin, and vote Gloria Young for king of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checkers, Sarah Jeannie, Spider, Matthew, Dustin, Brad, D-Laser, Nick, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah Jimmy Montana, The Jen, Halo, D-Really, Andrew, Lisa, Fat Tony's PJs from New York, Devon, the CFP, Gloria, my mom, Jared, Robert, Jay, Neil, Yeol Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Neil, AB, Darren, Nomadic Terran, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul. That's it. You want your name on that list. One place to go, take politics seriously.com. But that's it for us. We will be back on Friday. We, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a left turn. Again, we have a little bit of a break here, a little bit of a breather. And so we're going to enrich ourselves by bringing on the one and only Kevin Ryan. Kevin is going to help me process the newly politicized fame of Taylor Swift. We were in a text conversation and uh, we were going back and forth. Apparently, George Soros may have been involved in buying her catalog. And so with everything that is swirling around Taylor Swift right now, including the Super Bowl, which is in a city where I'm going, there's a lot to chew on. It's going to be a great conversation. That'll be on Friday. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.